0: Again, that's up to fifty percent off at mvmt. dot com.
1: Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership.
2: I had a thriving business, a stellar reputation you know, what I thought was a, a good marriage, uh, two amazing boys, a brand new house I had just built. Like I had all these things and literally with the flip of a switch, I lost everything in a very, very quick amount of time. And so I think I was in a state of shock. I was embarrassed, I was ashamed. I, didn't, I couldn't talk to anybody about it because I didn't want anybody to know. And I was petrified because for the first time in my life, I didn't know what to do. And I had these two little boys looking up at me every day with a big smile on their face, like, you know, daddy's our hero, he's gonna, you know. They didn't know what was going on, except that they were now living in a hotel with me. Um, And I just didn't know what to do. And it was the, it was definitely the scariest time in my life.
3: Have you ever felt like that? Knocked down so hard by your crucible that you aren't sure which end is up, let alone how to get up. You just heard today's guest, Hank McClarty, discuss the fallout from his fall from grace. Life in the fast lane to life at the residence inn. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. In this far-ranging interview with Warwick, Hank opens up about how a lack of humility and gratitude led to him losing the lavish life he had built in the financial services industry, and how his low point became his turning point when he found the grit, his word, to rebuild his career and his reputation. He did it by forming his own company, Gratis Capital, where his goal is to grow his team and his character as he grows the portfolios of his clients. He's recaptured success, yes, but far more important, he says, is that he's found true significance.
1: Well, uh, Hank, thanks so much for being here. Really looking forward to the conversation. Uh, You've done a lot uh, from your football career to finance and wealth management and, um, nonprofits. Um, I'd love to just maybe start uh, just to get a feel of your background, family growing up, siblings. So tell us a bit about Hank McLarty and kind of how you grew up in that environment.
2: Well, uh, growing up, uh, my childhood was pretty unspectacular. I, um, you know, normal kid playing sports. You know, I have one younger brother, mom and dad, the four of us. Um, So I will say one thing that was a little different about my growing up was at a very young age, I started setting goals. And that was something that I don't know why it wasn't something that went on in my family. But it was just something that I felt it gave me comfort to set goals and work towards things. And so, you know, as early as like third and fourth grade, I started setting goals for doing physical things like push ups and sit ups and would ask my dad to test me on Sunday. So you know, it was a normal childhood. Other than you know, when I talk about my childhood now, people look at me a little cross-eyed, like "You were doing what?" And I'm not really <laughs> sure what the motivating factor was, but I was a a fairly intense goal setter at an early age. And so, you know, by the time I got to high school, I started playing football in junior high, and that that seemed to play into the whole goal setting and and physical workouts and all of that, and. For some reason, when I was in the 10th grade, I decided I wanted to earn a college scholarship for football, which, you know, was not that uncommon. It's very uncommon for somebody that's not starting for their JV or their varsity team. And so I wasn't even good enough to start in high school. So setting that goal was a little bit unusual to say the least, but I liked what it did for me because it gave me kind of a North star to focus on all through high school. And so I worked extremely hard. It kept me out of trouble because my answer to everything was I've got to work out or I've got to run or what have you. And so um, by the end of my junior year, I still wasn't starting for my high school team, which is not, that's not a good sign when you're hoping to get a college scholarship. So <laughs> usually players that by their junior year are, are known throughout the state. They're on the newspapers all the time and there's colleges recruiting them. So I asked my dad, I said, dad, I don't, I, I need some help from you. I don't, this, this goal is getting very far off in the distance. I need to do something drastic. I need to move away for the summer to get ready for my senior year. So he helped me get a job on a horse farm in Kentucky, and I lived in a cabin by myself that summer. And so uh, I worked on the horse farm midday. I ran in the morning, and I worked out every afternoon at Wildcat Gym in Lexington, Kentucky. And I worked hard, and it was a lonely summer because uh, I didn't know anybody there but I came back for my senior year and I was in phenomenal shape and that set me up to have some success. So, um, third game of my senior year, there was a lot of college scouts at that game to see players from the other team that were already getting a lot of notoriety. And I had the game of my life. And, uh, the next day I got a full offer, uh, of full scholarship offer from Auburn to go play linebacker there. I got other offers from Tennessee and uh, Georgia, um, kentucky and so forth and ultimately decided to go to auburn so that's kind of in a nutshell my childhood and getting out of high school and and kind of the i guess the genesis of all the goal setting and kind of intensity that that i've had you know throughout my life and setting goals
1: i mean that's fascinating obviously from the earliest age you know never not, not everybody's driven there's you know a lot of people are laid back and, and it's not right or wrong it's different but you're obviously driven from an early age. Did you see any of that in either of your parents or grandparents? I mean, wh- you know, where did that drivenness come from? I mean, do you have do you have any role models in your family that kind of you emulated a bit?
2: No, um, which is a strange answer. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, no. <laughs> I think for me, uh, you know, my home life, I was never, never, you know, hit or abused or anything like that. But, you know, my parents had a very tough time. It was very unsettled at my house, a lot of uh, drama and things of that nature. And I think setting goals kind of gave me something to focus on other than the things that I wasn't happy about. And so um, it had nothing to do with any role model. it just something I fell into. And it made me feel good. It made me feel good to accomplish something and check a goal off and to to go do something that was hard to do and do it well and, and look back on it. That's, that's really the only reason I can say that I was doing it.
1: So it's not like your dad, for instance, was like ex-military or one of these very driven people that, you know, you often hear stories about dads dri- driving, their sounds like, hey, son, you had a good game, but I know you can do better. They're always pushing, pushing. No, It wasn't that kind of upbringing, it sounds like.
2: No. In fact, I think my dad was confused and bewildered as to why I was doing all the things I was doing. <laughs> it didn't make any sense to him.
1: <laughs> well, you know, sometimes it actually can work out better when, when somebody's not pushing you and you're doing it for you, not to make anybody else happy. I mean, yeah. that's, to me, almost the ideal. It's too many pushy parents. I'm sure you probably, in high school and in college, you probably ran across your fair share of your buddies who had the pushy parents and, you know, scholarship stars in their eyes and gonna come on son you can do better and I'm sure you've seen plenty of that in your time
2: oh yeah certainly children uh living out their parents dreams you know uh, through their so I guess in that sense when you put it that way I'm probably lucky because uh the the only reason I ever pushed myself was because I was pushing myself nobody ever pushed me
3: Hank, I want to jump in just for a second based up because I know from a conversation we had as we were preparing for the interview, there is, though, one story right about your dad when you sort of had it with football and you were going to quit and you talked to him. And he did, even though he didn't push you, even though he wasn't trying to live his dream through you, he did help you. Right. Stay focused on your dream and stay stay with your goal.
2: That's a great point, Gary. Um... Yeah. So when I got to Auburn, you know, I had worked so hard. I mean, I had worked myself really hard in high school, uh, maybe even to an unhealthy level to try to attain attain this goal. And so once I got the goal, it was kind of like, okay, what do I do now? So all these athletes at Auburn, most of them didn't have to work that hard to get there. They're just naturally gifted. They're much faster, much bigger, much stronger. So I remember driving over to Auburn my first day driving over to move into the dorm and start summer practice being very intimidated and insecure about my abilities. You know, can I hang with these amazing athletes? Cause I had to work probably 10 times harder than them just to, (laughs) you know, to get here. Um, And so I went over there with that attitude. Am I worthy of being here? Uh, Which is not a great place to start, but it's where I started. So uh, in my sophomore year, so I struggled a little bit my freshman year. My sophomore year, a coach came up behind me in practice to motivate me, and he didn't mean to do it, but he kicked me kicked me in the behind. know, uh, <laughs> said, hey, come on, McCarty, let's go. And when he mm-hmm. did, he, he just happened to hit my tailbone right on the end, and it was kind of like your funny bone, right? It yeah. just It's felt like a, a cattle prod. Right. Uh, on my butt or something. So I jumped up and I lost my temper and I spun around and I grabbed the coach. And um, which obviously, <laughs> that's not a good thing to do. And so <laughs> our head coach at the time, you know, our, my whole time yeah. there, Pat and I, is a, a known disciplinarian. Yeah. You know, you do things the right way. He was up in the tower and he saw it happen. And so a lot of things happened, but one of them was they ran me off the field. I thought they were going to kick me off the team, but they didn't kick me off the team. They just ran me until I wanted, you know, they just ran me every day. And, you know, it's kind of like, let's see what he's made of. Does he really want to be here? And so they were testing me and I wasn't passing the test very well. I wanted out of there. You know, I was whining to myself how unfair it was. And I called my dad who was living in Las Vegas at the time and, Told him I had this elaborate plan to leave Auburn and get a job at University of Georgia. At the time, you know, financially, Mm -hmm. my scholarship was paying for everything, and we didn't have the money. So I figured out this grandiose plan to get out of all these mean coaches and go to (laughs) University of Georgia and get a job, and I was going to pay my own way. I, you know, so within about ten hours, my dad was at the athletic dorm. Uh, He flew, you know, immediately from Las Vegas to Atlanta and drove down and. I'll never forget. He said, um, he said, son, I'm going to tell you from personal experience, you know, this is, this is your scholarship. You've earned it. If you want to quit, I'm not going to tell you you can't, but from personal experience, I'm going to tell you that if you quit now, when things are difficult, it's going to make it easier and easier in the future when things get difficult for you to quit and walk away from something. And I don't think you're a quitter.
1: Wow. I mean, that's, as you look back, I mean, that is some profound advice that your dad gave you. I mean, that was a gift, don't you think, that he gave you back then? Yeah,
2: and it's not what I wanted to hear. You know, at the time, I was probably 260 pounds, and, you know, just a big, muscled-up baby sitting in his car talking about how unfair the world was to me. And so, <laughs> and I wanted him to say, yeah, get out of here. This is unfair. And, and, and he didn't. He just said, I don't think you're a quitter. And there was no way, there was no way I could respond any other way than to stay unless I was just spineless. I mean, he challenged me yeah. in an unchallenging way. And I got out of the car so mad at him because I knew I couldn't leave now. He basically <laughs> challenged me as a man without, him, he challenged me as a man and I stayed yeah. and I worked through it. And, um, it definitely is a foundation that of all the other times that we're going to talk about today that uh, that right. I could have quit, I didn't. And that one instance was the foundation of me learning to never, ever stop when things are tough, because you need to make a decision, work through it, and then make a decision when things, when you're not feeling negative about it, it's a horrible yeah. time to make a long term decision.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a lesson that I think the audience needs to hear is you don't want to quit for the wrong reasons you want to quit because oh it's hard and life is unfair well life is unfair you know everybody who's alive knows that so to quit for that reason you almost inevitably will regret it so you don't want to make a decision that you know you'll regret you know there's a time to quit for the right reason and time not to quit and so I want to Jump to the really first crucible, but kind of one of the things I'm thinking of is sometimes, and you know, we don't need to get into all the detail, but sometimes when there's a bit of drama and uncertainty at home, by setting goals, it's like, well, I can't control the drama, but I can control who I am. I can set my own goals, I can set my own path. And so sometimes, you know, we live our lives in reaction to things. And so I don't know, maybe there was maybe a wired that way anyway, but when there's things that you can't control, Okay, what can I control? Well, I'm going to set some goals and, you know, I'm going to chart my course. Does that kind of make sense? Maybe there was a correlation, you know, way back when. Yeah, so uh, this is an amazing story because, you know, um, anybody that follows sports, there's some people who were so gifted and uh, sometimes they work out really well and there are a number of folks that are really gifted that never live up to their potential because it was all too easy. I mean, I... Grew up in Australia, so Australians follow tennis. I can think of, without naming them, I can think of one or two tennis players that are, you know, can't miss, going to win multiple Wimbledon majors that didn't. I'm sure there's football players, uh, baseball, there's a number of them. But the ones that have to really work hard and don't have as much physical ability or natural ability, they're often the ones that go further. Sometimes the ones that coaches want, right? You yeah. know, uh, coaches want folks who... um you know, have a good attitude and a work ethic that watch film.
2: There's a a word that I love that describes that, uh, grit, you know, they have grit. That means that, you know, that they're, they have the intensity and the wherewithal to push through things when they're not going well. And ultimately we all know that's what's necessary to succeed in life. I mean, life doesn't always go well. So yeah, I totally agree.
1: Do you have the grit to get through it? So the first kind of major crucible you went through understand was, um, when you're in college and you're diagnosed with a blood disorder. So just talk about that whole how that all happened and what happened and yeah, that story.
2: Yeah. So you know, after I went through that whole uh quitting exercise with my dad, things got much better and my attitude was great. I started feeling, you know, finally like I was worthy of being there. I worked really hard and got got myself in a position that I was really going to be contributing to the team. getting a lot of playing time. And, um, so I went into summer camp in August, uh, you know, in Auburn, it's a little hot, hot, it's a very hot place. So in August, it's, you know, hundred degrees, very high humidity. And we're doing at the time we were doing four practices a day and, um, my coach, you know, he liked to push us a little harder than most coaches. So, uh, four practices a day. And I had no idea I had this blood disorder, So during this time of high stress on the body and so forth, um, I had been losing weight over the previous week. I had lost about 15 pounds and it's normal to lose some weight in those practices, but I had lost more than was acceptable and couldn't figure out why. And I hit a guy in practice in a drill that normally I would dominate. And uh, when I hit him, I I passed out. And um, the next thing I knew, I woke up they had me packed in bags of ice on the field trying to get my temperature down. Apparently my temperature was over 105. Mm. And uh, so those, those uh, field, you know, the big bags of ice, you see the sports mm-hmm. scene. So they had me literally laying down with bags of ice all over my body. And uh, when they finally got my temperature down, they took me to the hospital and then did all kinds of tests. And I had a blood disorder that my immune system was kind of fighting me. And so uh, next thing I know, I'm in the head coach's office uh, two days later when I got out of the hospital and they were telling me that I couldn't play anymore. So I had dedicated uh, at that point, most of my life to the dream of being a starter at Auburn and, you know, being a contributor to the football program. And um, I was told I couldn't play anymore. So that was, um, that was kind of a redefining of me because my whole identity up to that point had been, I'm a, I'm a high school football player. Now I'm an Auburn football player. I really didn't have a whole lot going on in my life other than that. And my grades were just okay. So I had to, uh, well, first I had to get over the depression because I stayed in bed for about two weeks. I didn't go to any classes. Um, My roommates were worried about me and um, I just didn't want to get up. And that's the first time I had ever been through anything like that. And then I finally, you know, got up and had to go beg some professors to let me make up some work so I didn't fail classes. And I worked through that. And then, you know, generally I got focused on my grades. I graduated, I think I had, what, four more semesters out of school, five more semesters after that. I made a 4.0 in all of those and got my GPA up uh, to a respectable level and um, moved on after college.
1: So um, were you a junior when this happened or what what year were you? So... You'd spent your whole life focusing on goals. Football was sort of the medium, if you will, that you were going to, uh, you know, the the playing field uh, that you were going to aim for. And you weren't a starter for most of your high school. You were able to get a college scholarship. I mean, some things, maybe stars were aligned. You played hard. You were thinking of quitting. Your dad gave you that talk. And there you were. And then it feels like this is, unfairly taken away from you, you know, sort of the coach kicking you on the backside and, you know, you're getting blamed for it seemed a bit unfair, but this is the ultimate unfair. It's like, how do you solve a blood disorder? What's the goal? What's the program? What's the plan? Okay. Do I go back to Kentucky and work out harder? And, but it sounds yeah. like there was no plan that could overcome this, right? This was one goal you, you couldn't achieve no matter what you did. It sounded like, you know, no fault of yours, obviously. So I know this is probably blindingly obvious, but you've told us a bit about how you felt, but your whole sense of self was wrapped up in football and this goal. So those first few weeks, first few months, that must have been excruciatingly tough to have to deal with a new reality.
2: I think the best word is just lost. As I said earlier, kind of like no matter what was going on, whether it was being invited to a party or dealing with girls or class, pretty much any decision I had to make my whole life, you know, from high school on the North star was always football. I always had an, like, I could just think about, should I do this or shouldn't I, how's it going to affect this goal that I've set? That was what I valued everything off of. And then I just felt lost without it. And I wasn't really sure how to make decisions anymore, you know?
1: Well, and, you know, inevitably for most of us and, you know, as listeners would know, um, it's a very different parallel I suppose but I grew up in a large 150-year-old family media business and when that ended on my watch largely because of it was my fault I had this massive loss of identity well who is Warwick Fairfax if he's not part of this Fairfax family media empire I mean what is that? I mean I've have, I've have no identity it was just um, just kind of crippling so um, yeah talk a bit about that um, for you cuz I imagine there have to would have been have to be a hit to your identity. Who is Hank mcclarty without football? I mean, was that part of the sense of loss? It's like, that's who I am. Who am I now? Was that part of your internal discussion?
2: Of course, because I didn't even know what it meant to just be a student, um, without this this thing I was passionate about outside of that. There was just a huge void there that you know, joining a fraternity or going to some local gym or something, none of that was going to fill it. And I had to start really, because I'm a goal-oriented person, I had to start thinking about, okay, what's the next phase of my life? I've got to get these semesters of school finished and go start a career. So then I started focusing on my career, and that you know that started filling the void. Then when I started making good grades, which I wasn't used to, <laughs> you know making great grades, uh, I wasn't used to that. That started filling the void. You know, and before I knew it, I was out of college and looking for a job. So, and then that became my identity. So, I,
1: it sounded I, like you sort of shifted. I mean, we're all different. I'm, I'm a reflective person, which has its good and bad sides, but it sounds like you're a, a driven person that you don't sit still for long. Like, you know, you, I mean, we're all human. You might wallow for a few weeks or a month or so, but you're not going to sit there. It's like, okay, this is over. It sucks. It's awful. Move on. You know, what's the next goal? What's the next one? It sounds like, which can be, you know, reflection is good. Or as one of our guests said, there's a difference between ruminating and reflecting. Ruminating is I'm a terrible person. Oh, my gosh, what happened? Reflecting is like, okay, this sucked. This was awful. What can I learn from it? Let's move on. Radical right. difference between ruminating. So you're more in that healthier spectrum. So you shifted from understand to saying, okay, football's over. What's the next goal? And so why did you pick finance? Why did you shift to that to be the next goal?
2: You know, I'd like to say it was a dream. I'd had dreaming of like, <laughs> high school and college, and I had this big plan purely because I majored in finance really for no reason. And when I got out of school, I was like, okay, what does finance mean? Uh, a bank or a brokerage firm? So I'll go interview a brokerage firm. That, that was the very simplified basis for doing it. And I will say I interviewed probably 20 different banks and financial advisory slash brokerage firms. And every single one of them turned me down because I had no experience. I guess to them, I was a cocky former football player that probably was too big and full of money. You know, who knows? I don't know. I probably wouldn't have hired me, you know, college. so I was certainly no glamorous high grades, you know, depth of experience with a passion for the markets. That was not me. I just wanted a job. And I think people saw through that and nobody wanted to hire me.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, because often, especially in this day and age of three kids in in their 20s, I kind of know it's like people build their resumes now. It's crazy, you know, high school, summer jobs. I mean, just by the time you're a college graduate, there's, there's all this stuff that they've done. You know, president of the of the Auburn Finance Society, you know, they're already invested on different, you know, batches of stocks. And it's you know, all this stuff that's, it's. I mean, how do people do all this? But they do. I mean, you, you hire people in your current firm, you've seen it. It's just crazy what people at a given age have done. So, I hear the challenges, so how how did you get that first job? I mean, given yeah, people were well you say seeing through you, I mean, at least they were rightly or wrong, they had a perspective of you, which maybe you didn't feel that flattering at the time, but <laughs> you know yeah,
2: I don't think it was I mean
1: uh, uh, you, you, you're a smart person. you could probably tell what they were thinking, right? I mean, sure. how did you break through that barrier, if you will?
2: So I wouldn't say I broke through it. Uh, I found an angle. I, uh, I went to an uh, Auburn alumni supporter, a very wealthy man that lived in Atlanta that I had become friends with. I had lunch with him and I told him I couldn't get a job. And he said, well, I have all my money at Merrill Lynch. Let me call the manager over there. And make it so I said, okay, I'll take any help I can get <laughs> so I went to meet with the manager and he was so unimpressed. Even after that guy called, he said, yeah, you know, experience, you know, we're just not hiring right now. Yeah. And so I was at the time I was, my grandfather had a one bedroom apartment in Atlanta and I was living on pull pullout couch and I was pretty desperate. So the only person that I had had a conversation with that I had a reference point was the manager from Merrill Lynch. So I went back to the Merrill Lynch office the next day waited on him to come in from the parking deck, approached him again, and said, uh, obviously, I didn't make a very good impression the first time. (laughs) I really loved the opportunity. He blew me off. The next morning, I went back. And the next morning, I think he was a little frustrated and annoyed, but also somewhat impressed, I guess, that I was, you know, back there again. And, um, you know, he said, here's, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll let you take the series seven. If you fail it, you're fired. If you pass it, I'll give you a shot. But you won't become an advisor. You'll have to work for somebody as an apprentice. And in the meantime, while you're studying, you wear jeans and a t-shirt to work. You go pick up lunches, move furniture, you you know, basically be a gopher for me. And I'll pay you $18,000 a year. I was like, okay, done. So, that's how I got the job. Very unglamorous, you know. So,
1: but again, another good lesson is um, even when people say no, just that level of persistence. I mean, yeah. I don't know many people that would uh, wait for the guy to go in uh, in the parking garage like three days in a row or what have you. I mean, that's not normal. But that shows persistence does pay. I mean, if somebody, not to say everybody should try that, you know, turn the tables and do that to you. But if, proverbially, if somebody has that level of get up and go, I don't know if you'll say yes, but, it'll, you know, you'll pay attention, right? It's like, okay, this guy's persistence is, is impressing me. So, uh, okay, so you got your start at Merrill so, uh And from what I understand, when you join a brokerage firm, it's kind of like dialing for dollars. It's like you're just, you know, picking up the phone book. I don't know if, uh, if we're pre or post-internet then, but it's a tough road those first year or two building a client base.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, I didn't like it at all. You know, at least, uh, at least on the football field, I could see who was hitting me. Right. I mean, in this situation, (laughs) in this situation it was just calling people that hated the idea you were calling them and throwing some cheesy line at them about, you know, Hey, I'm so-and-so from Merrill Lynch, what, you know, how can I earn your business or some silly line (laughs) like that. And so there's nothing about it that's good or fun or whatever. And frankly, I was failing miserably at it. I was in a group of people that they had hired in a, you know, I guess a class of people right. and we were all trying to hit goals so we didn't get fired and, you know, hopefully move on to be an advisor. And I was way behind on all those goals and just kind of miserable. Just, this wasn't clicking for me. And I started, you know, really questioning, I don't think this is for me. I need to find something else. And so about the time I was ready to, here we go again, quit. Right. Um, I cold called this man in Atlanta and I threw the same cheesy line at him that I did everybody else. And he, he cussed me out worse than any football <laughs> coach had ever cussed me out. Right. He said, I mean, i would never even heard of before.
3: And he, well, he didn't kick you.
2: No, he didn't kick me. <laughs> he didn't grab me by the face mask, but if he could have, he would have. I promise. <laughs> he Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He yelled and screamed to the point that I literally, I finally, when he slammed the phone down on me, I hung up and I thought, nobody's ever talked to me this way. I got to go get in this guy's face. So I was like, I'm good anyway, who cares? So I drove out to his office. Uh, I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. I drove out to his office. I knocked on the door and, here came this guy, probably 60 to 65 years old. He came and answered the door like, yeah, yeah. You know, what can I do to help you? I'm like, I'm the guy you just said this, 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 this to," And I'm not <laughs> on your show. And I wanted to see what I could do to earn your business. And I got up kind of real close to his face. Sure. When I said that. <laughs> and he said, Oh, you know, I'm so sorry. Don't take it personal. You guys call me all day. I'm sure. so frustrated with it, you know, and come on in, let's talk. And <laughs> So anyway, I talked to him for about three hours that afternoon about life and sports and you know, whatever. And then he introduced me to his partner, who was the CEO and they ended up, um, they got a private equity firm to invest in their company and they brought in about $15 million and they called me up. This is after months of me building this relationship. They called me up and they said, Hey, you're a little green, You don't really know exactly what you're doing, but we like you and we trust you. Get somebody with some experience in your office and partner up with them. And we want to, we want you to come pick this check up. So I went and picked that check up and brought it back. I had to raise $10 million to get off the program. And this check was so in one cold call and one client, I broke all my goals and graduated before everybody else and went from a dog to a hero overnight. And, um, and the main thing that came from that, was well, two main things that came from that. One was, it was another example for me of I was on the verge of quitting. And yet again, I learned that every time I feel like quitting something, there's something incredible on the other side of it if I'll stick with it. So that was a massive part of what we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, and the second thing I learned was I got this job by being direct, and myself and confronting things with the manager to get the job I got this huge account by being direct and professionally confrontational like dealing with things I think maybe I can do this job if I quit worrying about all the things I don't know focus what I do really well and use all the resources of the firm to help me with the other areas and that's how I started building my business.
1: I mean, there's some profound lessons for people. Um, Be yourself. Um, I mean, you have this direct never say die attitude. I mean, everybody can learn from that. I mean, very few people, when somebody curses them on the phone with, you know, you play football. So I think I imagine your vocabulary is, you know, pretty decent in terms of, you know, (laughs) different colorful language. But when you say, boy, there are some words I'd never heard of. I mean, that's, you know, this guy obviously has a level of creativity (laughs) in that arena that's impressive. Most people would say, I'm not going to go confront that guy. 99.9% 99.9% of people wouldn't, but you said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to you know, just sit here. I'm going to go. And because he was almost embarrassed, he gave you a shot. And I mean, amazing. So what was, I can't imagine what your manager's face was like when I got so-and-so at X firm and it's going to bring in Y millions of dollars. I just need somebody to partner with me. I mean, did his jaw fall on the floor? I mean- what, what was that manager's expression like when you told him back at Merrill Lynch?
2: You know, I don't know what they thought of me. I certainly was not an eloquent speaker of the financial markets. And I was not, I didn't have all the, the terminology and the language, you know, down, Pat, or anything like that. I don't know what they thought of me. I don't know if they thought I was on my way out the door, or maybe they thought I had more potential than I thought. I'm not really sure. I mean, they were definitely happy when I got off the program and brought in you know these accounts. And I don't know if they thought, well, that's that's a one-hit wonder and he'll be out of here. I don't know. I was never that close with that manager. He didn't give me a lot of feedback.
1: So he never said, you know, hey, Hank, well done. You had more in you than I thought you did. He never really gave you any kind of feedback. He never kind of... No. Well,
2: no, I don't remember that. Yeah, um, that's kind of... Uh... Maybe he did. I don't remember. I just know that my belief in myself went up at that more so my belief in my style of doing things was, yeah. that I didn't have, you know, there was a lot of guys and, and girls in my mm-hmm. class or in that firm that were significantly smarter, better understanding of the markets, better understanding of financial planning, all of that. And I was just constantly looking around thinking I need to be more like that person or more like that person. And the result of this was more, I need to really train myself on what I'm good at and focus on these things that I'm good at and be a student of the market and um, you know start to really step up my game. That's really what- Yeah,
1: and well, I want to shift here a bit to the kind of next step or crucible, but you know, certainly as an aside, uh, I mean, I've been blessed to work with a lot of good people and have a tremendous financial advisor. It's funny how you said off air, you started at Merrill Lynch and went to Morgan Stanley, also have a financial advisor that uh, was at Merrill Lynch and when he moved to Morgan Stanley, I went with him. Well, I've been with him, I don't know if it's 15 years, I mean, a very long time. And the question is why? I mean, he he knows his stuff about finance. I mean, markets, technical stuff, he knows that. But the reason uh, that I have used him for so long is I trust him. Yeah. You know, yes, he'll speak straight to me, but I trust that he's not going to sell me a line. Oh, you know, I understand a bit about how it works. The powers that be at Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, you know, they're pushing something. And they're telling their brokers, you got to push X security because, you know, we'll make more money off of X security. I knew he would never, ever do that unless it was good for the client. It wouldn't even occur to him. So I don't need somebody to push me something just because powers that be want to make, you know, that's the what they're selling this month. So, you know, trust is huge. I mean, I would rather have somebody that I trust than somebody that was, you know, the equivalent of a rocket scientist in finance. There's armies of people at Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley. I mean, there's all these resources that if you're smart enough, you can bring to bear. But it's that trust. Trust is everything. And obviously, you're in this business. I mean, I'm now preaching to the choir here. But, you know, whatever your style is, clearly the people that you work with, they trusted you, that you would be straight with them. And you were going to fight for their interest, not because of somebody in the firm told you, but it's, it's Tuesday right. and this is the security we're pushing, you know, does that make sense?
2: Yes, for uh, sure.
1: So, okay, I wanna shift. So you, you went from Merrill to Morgan Stanley. So um, how did that shift happen? Was just an opportunity there at Morgan Stanley or?
2: Well, uh, yeah. So work. when i backing up for a second, when, when I closed that account, mm-hmm. Then it was kind of like, I you know, remember when I set my goal to be a major college scholarship football player. So now I was like, okay, it's time for another one of those. So I said, you know, my family's not wealthy. I don't come from money and so forth. So I was like, you know what, if I keep doing this, I bet by the time I'm 30, I can make a million dollars, which, mm-hmm. you know, to some people that's not a lot of money to me and where I came from, that was a massive amount from, of money. Right? Where so, you came
1: from and at that age, Anybody's going to say that's a massive amount of money.
2: That's right. And it would imply huge success starting from zero to get to that point. So I set that goal. By the time I was 30, I had a beautiful wife and two healthy young boys, toddlers, and I was making a million dollars or over a million dollars a year. And then uh, Merrill Lynch made a few mistakes with a couple of our largest clients and it almost cost me the relationships. And I decided to make a change to Morgan Stanley as a result of that. I moved my team over to Morgan Stanley and transitioned our entire all of our clients 100% of our clients and our team over there and I continued to grow and I really by this point I was I was pretty darn good with the markets I was I was really good with client relationships I knew you know very well what I was talking about and I started to get notoriety for it you know I started to be on the cover of magazines and um, you know, rising young star at Morgan Stanley and flying me all over the country to talk to other advisors about how I built my business. And unfortunately, all the humility that had gotten me to this point started to fade a bit. And um, I, I started kind of drinking the Hank Kool-Aid and <laughs> my ego started, like, frankly, a lot of people in that business, right? It's a very ego-driven business. And I started falling into that trap. And so, the more magazine covers I was on the, uh, that I was on, the more I was actually, uh, they wrote a book about the top 20 financial advisors in the entire United States. And at 34 years old, I was listed as number 12. across. Wow. All the so I had reached a level of success at an age that was pretty unusual, but I was aware of that and I believed in it and it made my ego feel really good.
1: And, and that's a tough thing. I mean, it's uh failure is not easy but success that's pretty tough too it's tough to withstand when people are saying you know Hank you're one of the rising stars here at Morgan Stanley you're reading the stuff and you know my clients love me I am pretty good I'm pretty hot stuff I mean it's hard you know I don't care where you come from that is intoxicating I mean humility is funnily enough one of my highest values but um nobody's impervious. When I was growing up in the newspaper business, you know, unlike some people that come from wealthy backgrounds, I always worked hard, got good grades, uh, you know, didn't want to be some dilettante, you know, uh, heir to some family fortune. So, you know, I had my dad saying, boy, you know, you could be one of the great Fairfaxes, you know, it's five generation business and, um, you know, come back and about to launch it. Two billion plus takeover. And being a person of faith, I had some people say to me, some believers, older believers, you know, we've been praying that God had raised somebody up in the heart of the media in Australia, and you're going to answer a prayer. I mean, you add all those things up, it's like, gosh, you know, maybe there's some preordained plan. And, you know, worked hard, Oxford, worked on Wall Street for three years, Harvard Business School. It's like, you know, even though humility is one of my biggest values you know, that it tends to erode that a little bit when you're hearing some of this press and or other people sure. and, you know, you work hard, which is not a whole lot of people from wealthy backgrounds, frankly, do work hard. So it's good, but then you can get pride over that, right? Look at me, I'm working hard, you know? So yeah, success is a tough thing to withstand. So you were you were rising high, you know, you're doing great, and then there was a fall as sadly sometimes happens when you're rising high, right? It just feels like the laws of nature, right? You know, the markets go up and down. I don't know. It feels weird. So tell us about that fall. You were doing so well at Morgan Stanley and two boys, wife. What happened then?
2: Well, you know, speaking of my wife, at that point, I think I was full enough of myself. She was getting pretty frustrated with me. Because I had developed into an egocentric person, not necessarily the humble person that she had met originally. So she was frustrated with me. Um, I got approached by another firm to lead Morgan Stanley. It was a new firm that had some very established people running the firm. They had already brought in a couple of teams from Merrill Lynch and and Morgan Stanley to join them in other cities. Their headquarters are going to be in Atlanta. And they said all the right things that my ego needed to hear to Convinced me that I would be the man at this firm. I would be yeah. the my team would be the anchor team of the whole company. And they were gonna pay me a huge amount of money up front to come do this. And so I introduced the CEO of this firm to a couple of my top clients. They clients, these are these were my two biggest clients. They mm-hmm. loved the CEO, they thought it was a great move. But in my uh, getting caught up with everything they were saying and the money they were going to pay me, I never checked their financials. And so I went in and resigned at Morgan Stanley and the Morgan Stanley leadership went crazy uh, because they had been promoting me. and They said they were going to ruin me. And I didn't care because I thought I had it all under control. And I left Morgan Stanley and got in my car to drive over to the new firm. And when I did, I called them and said, hey, I just resigned. I'm on my way over. And they said, the, uh, the ever faithful words, uh, well, we're waiting on our next round of funding. We can't write you your check yet. We should get it tomorrow. Come in tomorrow. And I thought that was curious, but I didn't let it bother me. But it ended up, they never got their next round of funding. They shut down. They went under and I never walked in their office once. Um, and so Morgan Stanley uh, increased my team. I had a team of nine people working with me. They increased their in, their salaries and income and they cut my clients fees that were there and bad me to the clients. And then I ended up with nothing. I lost my entire business and, uh, you know, my wife and I uh, split up and the next thing I knew I was, uh, all my assets were frozen and I had very little liquidity at the time because I'd spent most of my money on showy things. And so what little bit of liquidity I had, I had to give that to my ex-wife. And I moved into a small little motel that I lived in for 14 months with my two sons and wondered what I was going to do next because I had no income.
1: I mean, that must have been excruciating on so many levels. I mean, you're a very smart person, you know, I mean, the due diligence you do for your clients. I mean, how did you avoid, I mean, you know, I spent years beating myself up because of, uh, launching the takeover I did and making some massively stupid assumptions months after graduating from Harvard Business School. I mean, I, was, I wasn't an idiot. But sometimes there are reasons that smart people make really dumb decisions. Did you go through a, I know this is obvious, I so forgive the obvious dumb question. Did you go through a period of self-flagellation, self-recrimination? Like, how in the world could I have made that decision? How could I have not looked at the books? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, I mean... How did you process all of that?
2: You know, Warwick, I don't think it was so much how did I make that decision. It was more how do I get back what literally two days ago or three weeks ago or whatever I had. I had a thriving business, a stellar reputation, you know, what I thought was a a good marriage, uh, two amazing boys, a brand new house I had just built. Like I had all these things. And literally, with the flip of a switch, I lost everything in a very, very quick amount of time. And so, I think I was in a state of shock. I I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I I couldn't talk to anybody about it because I didn't want anybody to know. And I was petrified because for the first time in my life, I didn't know what to do. And I had these two little boys looking up at me every day with a big smile on their face like, you know, daddy's our hero. He's going to, you know they didn't know what was going on except that they were now living in a hotel with me. Um, and I just didn't know what to do. And it was the, it was definitely the scariest time in my life. And and for a little while I didn't know what to do and, and basically just kind of had to sit and marinate in it for a while. And, um, yeah. you know, just feeling like I'm going to throw up 24 hours a day.
3: And there's a story that you told me uh, when we first talked Hank about the hotel you were staying at had free breakfast. Yeah. Had free food. Talk about that. I mean, from being a, a man who covers of magazines, flashy stuff, you know, you're living in a hotel that has free breakfast and You were surprised that that was so important to you at that time, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, in all my spending on the credit cards, I had built up a massive amount of points on the credit cards. Unfortunately, those points would work at this uh, hotel, uh, the residence in Buckhead. And so it just happened they had free breakfast too. So our morning routine was to get ready. And before I took the boys to school, we'd go up to the little, little cafe area in the, uh, the guest check-in of the hotel. And, you know, of course living there for 14 months, we got to know him pretty well, you know, (laughs) but um, certainly wasn't a place that, um, that I had ever imagined that I would be after achieving this success that I had. But, you know, that being said, a lot of tears were, were shed uh, at night after I put the boys to bed, a lot of self, analysis a lot of self-awareness coming around that maybe wasn't there before Mm -hmm. so it was definitely the scariest and most painful thing i've ever been through but at the same time what i learned about myself in that process and what um i'm still working to become but i realized i have potential to become 100 percent of that came from those moments of just being scared as hell and um realizing I got I got two I mean, it's sometimes the only motivation I had because I, I there was plenty of times I felt like giving up. Um, if I hadn't had those boys so dependent on me, um, I'm not sure that I, who knows? I don't know. It's hard to imagine, but certainly was my motivation was to be with them as much as possible and make sure that I was a good role model for them and make sure I could provide for them. And that was really the motivation to start the new company.
1: So what is it you mentioned that you... Obviously, you can imagine it was devastating time, given how high you were flying and how well you were doing. What is it that you learned about yourself during those very dark days? That probably at night the boys are asleep and you've got you've got time to think, which is not always a good thing. But you know you had that time. You're looking at them, and I got to provide for them and give them hope. But what were some of the lessons that you learned about yourself during those dark days?
2: Um, I learned a lot about my perseverance. Um, that became, uh, there's a, you know, James one, four is kind of, it's a Bible verse that I had framed and put in it, it, at one time it was in my hotel room then it was in my office. If perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. mm-hmm that was something that I came it kind of became my mantra because I didn't know how this whole thing was going to turn out. I mean, there were many days that I thought I'm going to end up on the street. I learned that I'm a lot tougher than I thought I was uh, spiritually, mentally. And um, even though I kind of figured out that I could work really hard and make anything happen with the, giving the scholarship to Auburn, like I really realized in this scenario that I'm capable of a lot um, but, you know, the gratitude and the humility that are necessary to be the kind of leader or the kind of father or the kind of friend that I want to be are something that I have to stay constantly focused on uh, versus allowing the things of the world and, you know, shiny, flashy things to become important or, you know, affirmation from others that really shouldn't matter that much. You know, I should be you know, affirming myself if I'm living up to what I believe I should be doing. So those kind of things were a lot of self-awareness that came from
1: it. Those are some profound lessons. I think everybody can value from, especially people who are successful. I don't believe you can truly be successful without gratitude or humility. You know, if you don't have that, in my book, you're not successful, and certainly you're not somebody that I would admire, or you would admire, right? You, I mean, does that make sense? You got to have some gratitude and humility, and ultimately. You know, um, people get tired of working with arrogant people. You know, clients don't always like it. It's not a good way for a long-term relationship. It's rather than, well, of course I have your business. I'm giving you 20, 30% return a year. You know, uh, why should I be grateful? I'm the one doing the work. Why should I be grateful? I mean, you can have that attitude, but clients don't appreciate it. You know, they want you to be humble and grateful. So not only does it make good personal sense, it kind of makes good business sense too, you know? Um, and I'm sure you've had some young high flies that have worked for you. You've seen it's like, okay, been there, done that. Let me see if I can help you avoid some uh, some pitfalls. So that's, an, you, you learn some perseverance about yourself that you, you know, which you have a lot of, you hadn't really seen. So talk about how that led you to, a uh, gratis capital and maybe a new vision of how to do things. Because I'm I'm sensing what you do now. I'm sure you do well financially, but it, it's more than just the financial, the way you do business and the people you work with is different. You mentioned one other thing I don't want to lose, just seeing your sense of self-sufficiency in who you are, not needing others' praise. Like it shouldn't be like for my car to run, for my Ferrari to to roll if I don't have the adulation from others, it'll go nowhere? No. Your car shouldn't need other people's adulation to, to roar down the highway, if you get the metaphor. So that's another huge lesson, you know? Be internally motivated, don't depend on others' adulation. And again, I'm sure these are all lessons you've imparted to your team. But you talk a bit about gratis capital and where that vision came from and what it's about and how who you are. Is such a huge part of who Gratis Capital is.
2: Well, as I, I mean, you know, when I started the company, it was, uh, it was really the only choice I had. Uh, I knew wealth management. I knew how to take care of clients and, you know, why would I go to another company when they didn't really, I didn't have anything of value. I didn't have clients anymore. I had to start over. So I decided to start my own company because, uh, at least I could be in charge of all aspects of it. Um. I decided to do it differently. I didn't want to name the company, you know, a Wall Street name or my last name and it'd be about me or, you know, a name that has to do with money and and typical type stuff you see. So I spent a lot of time and came up with the name Gratis Capital because, you know, it's a Latin word for grateful. And from day one, I said, this company is going to represent something different in the marketplace. It's a company that's going to be built on gratitude for our team for the people the clients that we work with it's a company that's going to be built on humility and I'm not sure I would have been capable of building a company on those principles prior to having gone through this but um, so the vision I had originally it was just survival it was just you know I, I've i got to figure out how to make this happen quick I've got child support alimony private school tuition and I have no income and so I was in a very desperate place um, I didn't have time to cold call So I went cold walking. I mean, I knocked on people's doors. I got Mm. escorted out of buildings by uh, security for soliciting. Uh, But at that point I was so low. I was kind of, I was like, you know, what's one more person kicking me. I, it really, I was so desperate at that point that I just needed to build the company and slowly, but surely uh, you know, I will say when I was out, I had that book that I had been written about me. It was the only thing I had to kind of, certify or clarify that I was somebody that knew what I was doing, even though my company was very young and I didn't have a track record or anything like that. I did have this book that I could say, Oh yeah, look at chapter 12. That's me. You know, there's somebody I used to know, have some access to media and I used to have people write things about me that said I knew what I was doing. So take a look at that. So it was some, some credibility anyway. Um, And sure enough, I closed my first big account had a little bit of money to hire somebody and got a little bit of money to buy some software and then built some momentum and and hired some more people and closed some more accounts. And then, you know, we really started to build momentum. Uh, But it was really through the attention and the care that I paid to clients in a very different way than I did before Um, because I was just so damn grateful to Having clients trusting in this new company that I had started all on my own uh, with nothing. And it, it was just a very different feeling and a very different approach.
1: So, talk about let's say, I don't know, at some club or what have you, you had some of your biggest clients from your Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley days. And let's say they ran into uh, some of your clients at Gratis Capital and said, Oh, you know, you've used Hank McLeodie. Oh, great guy. So, tell me about Hank. What's your experience? what would they say about you? You know, sort of the folks that knew you in the old days and the folks that, you know, know uh-huh. you now, who, who, what are the contrast the two Hanks, if you will?
2: So if I, if one of my clients that I deal with now, I only deal with a handful of clients mm-hmm. now, um, cause I spend all of my time running the company, but, uh, there's still a few that I spend time with, uh, they would tell you that I will fight for them like nobody that they've ever worked with, that I won't take no for an answer. I'm an advocate for them and that I'm extremely tenacious when it comes to making sure that their situations turn out the way they should, the way I told them they would. And that when it comes to dealing with outside people that have impact on their situation, that I, I fight for them. Uh, I mean, the, the asset management, the returns on their stocks and investments and, you know, the, t- the trust and estate and the tax strategy, all of that is a given. My team is phenomenal. They're the mm-hmm. best people that I could ever get on a team. But what they would say about me personally is what I do, that, that I'm extremely passionate about taking care of them.
1: I'm just trying to contrast because I imagine the folks that knew you in your Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley days might say, well, that's the guy who we know. He, he fought for me back then. What what would be the difference between the gratis capital Hank and the Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley Hank? Are there any, what would be the difference? Uh,
2: I fought for clients back then, but I also, I wouldn't say that I would go to the links for clients then like I would now. Um, I'll, I would say that the approach that I have is there's just a whole different level of appreciation that I have for the clients that we work with. And I was never unappreciative before. I just didn't really think about it a lot. Today, you know, I and this team that I work with, we built this. We have a very special company. We built this. So when we have clients come and they trust us with, you know, other than their children, probably the most important thing in their life, like I recognize that. And my attitude and my passion for taking care of them and my team's attitude and passion, because it all comes from the top, is much more personable and much more uh, intense than it was when I was in my prior
1: so, Do you think that there's a level of humility and gratitude that has taken your level of perseverance, even your desire to perform for your, cl- your clients to another level in some ways, if that makes some degree of sense?
2: Uh, yeah, for sure. I also think that one thing I've learned, you know, our, our company is close to 40 people now. And, and, you know, as we achieve my vision, we'll be over 200 the greatest satisfaction I've ever had in my career has been building this team. Mm-hmm. I love taking care of our clients, but I've imparted that on my team members because they're running the company now. So I think the greatest honor and responsibility that I have, other than raising my sons is ensuring that this team can reach their potential. And it is the one, it's, it's, it's now my North star is us achieving our vision as a company Me constantly working on my leadership skills, my ability to impact this team, bringing them together getting them to believe in our vision. I mean, how many workplaces have a team that believes in something bigger than themselves? Like that is what motivates the hell out of me is looking now on Zoom calls. It used to be face to face on Zoom calls. When I go over our values and our vision twice a month with our team and I see their eyes light up on the Zoom calls and I see them. Mm-hmm. Totally focused on what I'm saying because they buy in there's nothing in my career that I've ever done that gives me the the motivation that that does and that
1: i, I you yeah. know I, I want the the listeners to hear that because what I'm sensing is there's a big shift from you know Hank McClarty being focused on his own performance, maybe primarily in the old days. To while. Yes, you want your individual performance to be good, but I'm hearing you talk a whole lot less about Hank and a whole lot more about the team at Gratis Capital, and that you used the word North Star. Your North Star is helping your team be the best they can be for the client. But does that make sense? It's a bit of a shift from I to we. And yes, the results are going to speak for themselves, that vision and values will you know uh, translate into superior performance. But do you know what I'm saying?
2: Work. I know exactly what you're saying. I think that's a great way to put it. I, I, I would not have put it that way, but now that you do, I think that's exactly the difference that maybe my clients today might say because I take zero credibility for any success with our firm or any success with clients. Frankly, my team is all, they have more designations than me. My only designations is the, is the rise and fall <laughs> and then the rise <laughs> again. Uh, they're all smarter than me. They're more talented than me. The only thing I've been really, really good at is bringing them together into a team because my team is amazing. And the only other thing I've done well is motivate them and get them inspired to work together and get them to believe that our team as a unit is more important than them as individuals. And I say that to them constantly. And a lot of that comes from the lessons I've learned the hard way uh, that I hope none of them ever have to learn it the way I had to learn it.
1: And I know we're getting to the point where we probably need to summarize here a bit, but again, this is probably an obvious question, but as you look at where gratis capital is and um you know, just one of the things that we've have, it you know, it says that uh Gratis Capital Day is ranked one of the top hundred firms in the US by Forbes. I mean, that's that's a pretty amazing accolade. You know, there's a lot of financial firms out there and you're obviously doing amazing. But as you look at what you've achieved, would that have been possible without just the crucible you went through, being in that kind of residence in, you know, with two boys sitting there late at night, and I don't know how I'm going to be able to, you know, afford everything from school and food on the table, and just those that darkest time. Would the what you've achieved at Crownest Capital have been possible without the lessons and those hard times you went through?
2: Maybe for some, not for me. Um, hmm. I think, you know, for me, I needed my ass kicked um, and, it, and I got it kicked.
3: Um, not by a football coach. This nope, time.
2: nope. I got my ass kicked by life um, and as a result of 100 percent my own doing and my own decisions. But for me to realize what my potential and my abilities were, were never going to happen where I was. And, um, you know, I do think I have some good leadership skills. They have a long way to go, but um, I'm committed to becoming every aspect of what I can as a leader. And I think the the major thing that motivates me now is I'm 51. You know, before you know it, I'll be 70 if I make it that far or 80. And uh, I am scared to death of looking back on my life and saying I did not leave it all on the field. And I know for me to leave it all on the field, it's not a dollar sign. It's how many rock stars can I bring into this company and mentor and coach for them to become better than me? If, if I can look back and say, maybe that's 20, maybe it's 200, whatever the number is, I would never have been able to do that had I been the old me. And that's, you know, there's a lot of people that will impact thousands, millions of people they will make hundreds of millions more than I'll ever make. But for me, looking back, knowing what I've been through, if I can say that I have, to my fullest potential, worked hard, become a leader, a great dad, and had an impact on the team that I am um, lucky enough to get to lead, then that does it for me.
1: And that's one of the things we talk about is legacy. That's a kind of a legacy that you'd be proud of, right? When the folks that you're mentoring now, let's say 30 35 years down the track, your boys in 30 years, who is Hank McClarty? These are some of the things you're hoping they, they would say, yes, a good dad, he was there for me, co-workers, he fought for me, he helped give me opportunities, he developed me, coached me, mentored me. Sounds like that's the kind of legacy that you would hope or the portrait that would be painted of you, right? That's kind of, I don't, I don't want to use the P word, the plan or the goal, but it's, it's nothing wrong with plans and goals, but that sounds like it's shifted, right? It's that's the kind of image that people in 30 years time or 40 years time, that's what you would hope that they'd be saying of you, right?
2: So I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll unless you wanna ask me another question, I'll, so. I'll kind of close my comment on that with this. When I turned 50, we had, I don't know, maybe 30 friends come to my lake house for my birthday party and my sons were there. And at the end of the dinner, you know, they started going around the table, making some very gracious comments towards me about who I am as a person, whatever. And my oldest son stood up. And hopefully I can get through telling you this real quick, but because um, <laughs> I get emotional every time I talk about it. But my oldest son stood up and he raised his glass and he said, and he's 24, so he would have been 23 at the time. He raised his glass and he said most of you have no idea some of the things that me and my dad and my brother went through. But I want to toast my dad because no matter what we went through, there's never been a day that my brother and I ever wondered if we were my dad's number one priority. Mm. And for me, even my friends came up to me after he said that and he's like, buddy, you won. Like you won one of your sons or both your sons say that about you. You win. And so, um, yeah, to your
1: point. Well said.
3: That sound that you heard was not a barking dog. It was actually the captain turning on the, the uh, fasten uh, seatbelt sign because it's about time to land the plane. Uh, until we do that, though, uh, Hank, I want to ask you a couple of things. One is you named the business Gratis Capital because gratis means what?
2: It's the Latin word for grateful.
3: Correct. And if... We could see it uh, if it were summertime and it, and we were at the beach. You have tattooed on you a couple of words that guide your life as you're moving forward, correct? Correct. And those words are?
2: Gratis and humility.
3: Two key principles for how you've uh, moved on to live your life. And one of the things uh, about this conversation and... I think listeners will agree with me. In many ways, Hank, while your story is 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 so unique, the beats of your story are almost prototypical crucible leadership. The idea that you go through crucibles, you you learn the lessons of the crucibles, you bounce back from those crucibles, and then you apply them to your leadership in business, in your profession, in your community. While at the same time, you learn and. How to lead a life of significance, focused on something larger than yourself, larger than just success. We, you know, you've got success. You've also got significance with your son saying what he said at that fiftieth birthday party. Before I wrap up with sort of what I think are our three good takeaways, I'd be remiss, Hank, if I didn't give you the chance to uh, let our listeners know how they can find out more about Gratis Capital.
2: Sure. Uh, www.gratiscapital.com G R A T U um, S.
3: Thank you for spelling that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Definitely not gratis meaning free. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Bravo. That, that sounds you hear is Warwick laughing in the plane landing. So Warwick, did you have a final thought before I close?
1: Um, just, uh, thank you so much, Hank, for being here and just your transparency and, um, you know, it's easy to talk about failure in a lot of ways and tragedy, but um, you've had your challenges, but you've also had success. And being able to learn how to be successful and be content, to be humble and grateful and successful, that's very difficult to be. I doubt that you know too many people outside your orbit of Gratis Capital have all those things that are successful, financially and a humble, and a grateful, that is, trust me, it's really, really tough. And the fact that you've done that, and the testimony from your son, and I'm sure if your co-workers had got up, they would have shared, obviously, your son is going to be the pinnacle of who you care about in terms of your you know, your kids and all, but I'm sure your co-workers would have shared some amazing things about how you fought for them, and you are with them and supported them, and um, so... Yeah, I think it's just, you know, we talk about a life well lived. Um, It feels like you're doing that. You're living a generous life focused on others. And and that's an amazing journey that you've been on. And so I think listeners can really learn from this. It's fine to be successful, but you've, I'm sure, known a bunch of successful clients. And obviously, I grew up in about as uh, wealthy a privileged upbringing as it's possible to, to grow up in. A lot of miserable folks who were very wealthy. And so yeah. nothing wrong with being successful. I'm all for it. But being successful and content and happy and filled with joy, it requires some of the things that you've learned. Some humility and gratitude. So that's, I think, a message for folks that they don't always hear. You can be successful, but you want to be joyful and happy. You've got to have some of those other things, too. Humility and gratitude. And so that's a very important lesson for folks, uh, Yep.
3: I have been in the communications business long enough to know when the last word on a subject has been spoken, and that was yours, Warwick. I do have, in summary, let's call it an epilogue to the last word being spoken. Um, I have a summary of some takeaways from this conversation with Hank McClarty that I think, uh, listeners, you can apply to your own crucibles and your own uh, movement beyond those crucibles. Lesson number one, and Hank said it at the very outset of our conversation. You are never too young to set goals. Hank started doing it in third grade. Identify the things you'd like to achieve to bring your vision to reality and break them down into milestones you can pursue as you walk the path to make that vision a reality. A goal set is a stone laid on the path that will lead you to the life you want. Despite the bumps along his path, Hank's dedication to setting goals has helped him not just find success, as Warwick just mentioned, but has pushed him through setbacks and failures to find significance. A second takeaway point, the lesson Hank learned from his father, don't quit. Listen to Hank's dad, listener, don't quit. Especially when you're in the abyss of your crucible, when the chip's are down, stick it out, stay the course, build your character, build your grit, is the word Hank used when we were talking about it. You will not only move beyond your crucible that you want to abandon, you'll set yourself up to weather the crucibles that will certainly come down the road. And we heard it from Hank. His first crucible with football ending was not his last crucible. He's been through others, and the grit he developed along the way has helped him through that. And then finally, uh, a third point is don't drink the, insert your own name here, (laughs) Kool-Aid. Hank's greatest crucible, as he uh, explained, occurred out of a lack of humility and gratitude. He was on a roll and impressed with himself, his words, not mine, so much so that it contributed to his crucible. It led to all that he believed to be true and important about himself to crumble. And it was in the rubble of that crumbling that he discovered a new vision, one that he's passed along to both his children and to his employees. He took his focus off, the only goal being the brass ring, and he put the focus on his offspring. It was the start of his life of significance And that sort of shift in thinking can be the start of your life of significance as well. So, listeners, until we're together the next time, thank you for spending time with us in this uh, truly moving and informational and hopeful and helpful conversation with Hank McClarty. Warwick and I have a couple of favors to ask you. One, tell people about the podcast if you've enjoyed what you've heard here. Let people know that we're out there. Uh, Share a link with them in social media so that they can benefit from this as well. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate it if you would click subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to our show on right now. So until that next time that we are together, remember this truth about your crucible experiences. Yes, they're painful. Hank's certainly were painful. Yes, they can knock the wind out of your sails. That happened to Hank. They can change the trajectory of your life. They did that for Hank a couple of times where he felt like his identity was stripped away. But the good news is if you stick with it, if you learn the lessons of your crucibles, they're not the end of your story. In fact, as Hank's story proves, they're the beginning of a new story that can lead to a far better conclusion than you ever thought possible. Because the conclusion that your new story leads to is a life of significance.